Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm excited about the person that we have today because it's a really, really interesting trajectory going from corporate to really becoming an entrepreneur and doing something meaningful. So I guess without further ado, Dave Girard, welcome to the show today. Hello, Alejandro. Great to be here. So uh, Dave, so it's really interesting, your, your profile. I see that right out of college, you went into consulting. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I did consulting because I had no idea what else I wanted to do. So I figured that would be a good way to try out a whole bunch of things. But that's something interesting because you studied, you were like more on the engineering side. So typically you would go to like a startup or something like that. So why did you think that a place like Accenture would be the, the first a good step for you? Well, honestly, when I graduated college, it was a long time ago in the 80s, and doing startups was kind of a fringe thing. I mean, I, I, I didn't go to Stanford. I went to Dartmouth, which is in New Hampshire. And uh, so, honestly, uh, it, it probably didn't even occur to me at the time, the idea that you might start a company. Um, probably, like, radical would have been going to work for Microsoft or something. But anyway, I chose the uh, consulting path because it was sort of a combination of being able to write code and do technical things, but more on the business side, which I, I found compelling. And then you also, right after that, you did a little bit more of computer engineering before you started at Allen and Hamilton. Who's Allen and Hamilton? Is that right? Yeah, I kicked around in consulting a bit more. Again, just a little bit trying to uh, figure out uh, what to, you know what, what really interested me. And I'd say generally the other good thing about consulting is you can make a lot of money. You don't spend any money because you don't have a, a life at all, and you get to pay off a lot of your student debt, which is what I did during those those early years. So was there like, uh, because one of the things that I see is some of the best entrepreneurs have actually had some, some form of experience at a consulting firm. And, and I, guess, I guess from your experience and, and from what you see in others that have like a similar path, why do you think that's the case? What, what is that takeaway that you get from being in consulting for a few years? Well, certainly consulting firms, depending who they are, they're not all the same, but you, know, you have to think on your feet. You have to better walk into some sort of client business that you don't have prior exposure to and, and provide some kind of hopefully useful analysis. You're usually interacting with fairly senior people at the company, if not the CEO. And, you know, if you're a 20 something person getting that level you know, of exposure is, is pretty awesome uh, and pretty challenging. And, you know, that's why I think at least historically, a lot of people out of great schools with, with interesting backgrounds 
you know, do a few years in consulting because you get fairly broad exposure uh, and with super senior people. And, and that's, that's not a bad way to spend two or three years. I hear you. I hear you. So, so then finally you make the switch to, to, to tech and, and you started at Apple. So what, what triggered that move? Yeah, you know, I, I, I was, became over time pretty quickly less enamored with the consulting lifestyle of living on planes, uh, wearing suits, you know, doing PowerPoint presentations. At some point, you want to actually be in the business and doing things. And uh, Apple was actually a client at my last consulting firm. So I had done some work there and I had some friends there, et cetera. And it just uh, at the time felt like a great way to jump off the consulting thing, uh, be in the valley, Silicon Valley for real, uh, sleep in my own bed at night, at least, you know, most of the time. And, and so all that just made it a great move, even though, frankly, you know, back in those days, this was uh, early to mid 90s. It was the dark days of Apple. So it wasn't exactly uh, prescient timing. Was there like something around culture or um, creativity or innovation that that was like a big takeaway for you during this time? Yeah, I mean, even though it was not the best years of Apple, it was frankly the worst years of Apple. It still had an, uh, it still just felt like an amazing place to be. Um, you know, I grew up when I went to college, I had the very first Mac the, in 1984 when I started college. My entire freshman class had the 128K Mac. So I was kind of born and bred in the Apple culture. Uh, so that was like really rewarding, even though, again, it was it was not the best years of Apple. Um, and it just felt like, at least for me at the time, it was a great place to start. I, I would say generally I was somewhat risk averse. I mean, I just even again at this time, I wasn't quite thinking, you know, what's the what's the startup to jump into? I, it, it wasn't even something that was at least at that time really occurring to me. Was this kind of like your your first, um, I would say, experience or or really being heads on when it comes to product? Yeah, that's for sure. I joined, you know, the PowerBook group and, and was really kind of starting off like an analyst who was helping the product managers decide what to do next and what the competitors were doing. So it was kind of like a first step into being part of the, you know, the machinery that builds new products, makes the decisions, et cetera. And, you know, that was a pretty exciting place to be compared to, you know, making PowerPoint slides for executives. So, so it was, even though it wasn't ultimately uh, the best outcome, certainly in the time I was there, uh, it was, it was a great transition for me. Got it. And, and I, I believe like literally three months you left on around April 97 and in July 97, that's when Steve Jobs came back. So I can imagine that this was like when he was like nearing a potential bankruptcy. So, um, so I guess, I guess, I guess for you, Dave, what triggered the, um, the switch to, to Virage? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I think I was a little bit, you know, I, I, uh, Apple was on a downbound train during the time I was there. You're right. I mean, it was, it was, it, it was, uh, a lot of people questioning whether the company was going to survive. And, and it, you know, during my time there, I did start to really see what was happening. I had some friends leave Apple almost when I got there and they went to Netscape. And I was like, wow, that's kind of super interesting. And uh, so, you know, during that time, the internet was really taking hold. Uh, and I was at Apple, which, you know, certainly at that time was not in the center of it. So uh, it finally just occurred to me that, you know, there were, I really should think about moving on. And, you know, even if I had known what would happen at Apple, even if I had known what would happen with Steve Jobs coming back, it doesn't necessarily mean it would have been great for me. I, I did finally get the, the bug to, you know, go into a startup and see whether, you know, I could move the needle and make a startup a go. And, uh, you know, so, so finally, I guess in 1997, I made that move. And for better or worse, 
it was a mere two or three months before Steve Jobs, you know, came back and became the CEO. So what was this experience? Uh, because you were there for like six years and I mean, almost almost seven years. So so what was this experience for you? Yeah, uh, I was only at Apple for maybe two or three years. Uh, on, on the next one, right? Before yeah, yeah. yeah, the next one is a startup called Virage, which most people wouldn't remember at this point. But, you know, it was a very, super interesting technology around image recognition and video recognition. So, uh, you know, it, it was a business that started off kind of a software tools business, but of course the internet was in full blossom. So we were kind of, in fact, I was assigned to go figure out how to make it an internet business. And, you know, it, it was a reasonably good success story. We actually went public in, I think, 2000, which was this time frame when all sorts of companies went public that probably had no business doing so. And I would definitely put us in that category. Uh, so, you know, it was a fun ride. Um, I don't know if six years there was the best use of that time, but Um, but generally speaking, a great experience, great people I worked with, um, not a huge financial outcome for anybody, but again, it was my, it was my formative startup experience. And and that to me, uh, was pretty rewarding. So you actually went through the, um, dot-com boom and the dot-com bust. So any, especially doing the, the whole IPO experience. So what, what kind of learnings or, or takeaways, especially because there's a lot of people that they say that we're nearing a potential uh, correction uh, once again. So is there any takeaways or things that perhaps you learned on how to tackle the next time around when it comes to correction? Well, well, I think for sure that you have to feel super confident that your business is ready to be public. Uh, I don't know that we thought we were, but the investment bankers were pounding the table and saying that we were. So that sounded pretty good to us. And ultimately, uh, even if you fast forward to today, you know, the executives and the leadership in the company ultimately have to be the ones to make the right decision for the company. Uh, operating in a private, uh, as a private company is certainly uh, a lot less uh, to deal with and handle than being public. So, so that's really the lesson I learned. I mean, honestly, our business was not predictable enough, was not at scale um, to be a public company. And I just, uh, that's, that's not a place you want to be. Uh, and, um, I certainly have taken that to heart, uh, ever since. So then, I mean, you were here for quite a while. Uh, what, what, what do you think got you to, to stick around for so long? Just out of curiosity. You know, uh, it's funny, but it was just sort of, a. I really believed in what we were doing. I always felt like the next, uh, turn of the crank was really going to be the difference maker. So, uh, I mean, I guess to put it in a positive light, I had perseverance that I, I really felt that we were doing something interesting and unique, and it was uh, going to emerge soon. Um, and, you know, I think whenever you're in a startup, it's a really hard question for you to figure out, is this thing going somewhere? Because if you jump around too quickly when something's not working, you know, that's not a wonderful career and, and you're not really um, uh, probably optimizing for your own outcome. But at the same time, you know, sticking around forever in a company that's not working is also not a great idea. So there's no easy call in that. Um, I generally, if I look back at that time, I think, yeah, maybe I could have left earlier, especially since I went to Google next. Uh, but I didn't have a job offer from Google two years earlier than I than when I went. So generally speaking, I, I have no regrets. I feel like it was a great experience. But but I think it's a hard question for anybody who is in the startup world is how long do you hang in there and, and when is the right time to jump? But I, I tend to lean towards wanting to really make sure and invest my time and, 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 uh, but, uh, ultimately you'll know when you have to jump. So let's talk about this next one about, uh, Google. So how did that offer or how this, uh, this transition happen? Because this is certainly one of the highlights, um, one of the multiple highlights in your professional career, but definitely this one 
was a big one. So you became the president of Google Enterprise. So, so tell us about this. Yeah, well, maybe the exit of the prior company is an interesting story. I was on paternity leave. My son, who's now 15, was, was, uh, had just been born. And uh, my uh, Virage was acquired by a company called Autonomy, which has become very famous for a different reason uh, since then. But in any case, I was on paternity leave and I got a phone call and they essentially said, you know, we have we have good news and bad news. And the good news is you're going to be able to spend more time with your new son. (laughs) And the bad news was we've eliminated your position. So, uh, and through this acquisition. And so anyway, I went through a period with my wife where we were on a job search, didn't know if he would stay in the Bay area, moved to Seattle where she's from, moved to Boston where I grew up. Um, and, uh, after a long convoluted process, I, I got into this discussion with Google about this, you know, thing they refer to as enterprise, which I, I found a curiosity at best, like Google has an enterprise business. And, um, you know, the recruiter basically said, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know what it is, but if it doesn't work out, I'm sure there's something else going on there that would be interesting. So, uh, in the end, after what was probably a six month process, uh, I ended up at Google and was sort of asked to go figure out this enterprise thing that Google was doing. And, and, uh, that was, you know, now we're talking about 2004. Got it. This, so, so you actually finalized with Virage in August, around August 2003, and then you started Google around February 2004. So, so I guess, I guess, how mature was uh, Google Enterprise, and and what was because you were with Google for eight years. So I'm sure. I mean, this was also a really cool, you know, long run. So, so tell us about this journey and this experience, really building this this up. Sure. Well, when I, you know, interviewed at Google, it was a private company. And so nobody really knew, other than it was a very popular search engine, nobody really knew how big it was. I mean, people were speculating and it wasn't until, you know, you got there and, and it was still at a point where I remember, you know, pulling into the parking lot and going, wow, this is so cool. These people work for Google like that. I'd never met someone who works for Google. And, and it was, you know, maybe 1500 people at the time. So it certainly wasn't a small company, but it was nothing like it would become. Um, and, uh, uh, so showing up there, you know, uh, when I got inside, I all of a sudden discovered, wow, this is like a multi-billion-dollar revenue business already, and the world just doesn't know it yet. Um, and this enterprise thing, which was really, you know, before Google knew that this advertising business would be the thing, uh, it really didn't know, and it had built this thing, this really pretty yellow uh, piece of hardware called Google Search Appliance, which was essentially Google's cool algorithms in a box that you could use in your company to search on your own information. And believe it or not, there was a time when Google thought this might be how they fund this whole dang thing. And uh, and by the time I got there, the ad business was absolutely cranking, but they really didn't want to kill this, this yellow, this pretty yellow box. And so I was kind of asked to go figure it out. And literally on my first week, they said, by the way, if you want to just kill the whole thing, that's cool too. Uh, so it wasn't as if... Um, there was complete conviction around this. And, you know, so that's where it started. But very quickly, you know, a month or so after I got there, uh, Gmail was launched on April Fool's Day, 2004. Uh, and nobody quite knew if it was a joke or not, but it turns out it wasn't a joke. And, you know, Gmail turned to, turned into what we called Google Apps, which was really, you know, the cloud-based application idea. And, you know, the term cloud wasn't used then. Um, but that became most of my focus is taking Gmail and Google Docs and Google Calendar, turning them into uh, essentially a suite of products that could be used together 
you know, by consumers and then by schools and businesses and, and ultimately something Google would, would charge money for and start to begin to build a, another business. And that ended up being you know, my predominant focus during my eight years at Google. Got it. And, and, and I'm sure that today must be like a massive uh, piece of, of their business, no? Yeah, I mean, essentially, it just grew into this, what they now just refer to as their cloud business. And I, I was literally up in, in San Francisco uh, this week at a, at, a, at a lending related conference. And next door, this thing they now call Google Next apparently had 30,000 people at it. So wow. uh, really funny to walk by that and go, wow, that's the business that I that I started. And, and that's what it's become. But um, it's not just, of course, Gmail and Google Docs. It's, it's all about cloud compute and AI and a myriad of other things that you know, Google's taking on um, both Amazon and Microsoft and IBM and everybody else. So it's a it's an enormous business at Google now, many billions of dollars. And uh, uh, so I can just happily think I was I was there for the first billion. So I mean, uh, this this time around, especially you were you were able to really see Google um, thrive. I mean, the other day I was saying um, I interviewed another guest that that he also was an early employee. He started on February two thousand and three in in Google when the shares were at two dollars a share. Really unbelievable, and and obviously he made a killing too. So so I guess the um one of the things that that he was sharing, you know, was also the the incredible innovation and creativity and and what was going and how fast you were you you, you guys were moving. So so I guess. What were some of the lessons that that you learned? Because even though you were not an entrepreneur per se, yet within Google, it was kind of like everyone was very much intrapreneurial, sort of speak. Is that right? Yeah, it was fairly uh, just a eye-opening environment. You'd walk in there, and almost every aspect of building a business or a company or a culture was was challenged, and it was just kind of extraordinary. It wasn't just about the product and the search engine. It was just like how we hired people, the types of people we hired, you know, what the idea of management or planning was just all these notions you had of how to properly run a company were essentially thrown out the window. I mean, Larry and Sergey had their own very definitive ideas about how to do something different. And, and they were confident enough in their views that they would dismiss sort of classic management uh, thinking. And fortunately they were, both extremely brilliant and, and able to actually do this. And I think probably the singular lesson I learned more than anything is um, your ability to bring amazing talent into a company is ultimately the predictor of your success. And uh, what Larry and Sergey really did is they just, with supreme confidence, knew what the types of people they wanted to hire and they found them. And it kind of grew on itself because great people really want to work with great people. So over time, it just kind of accrued into this enormous advantage of the quality of talent uh that you uh that was that was there at google in these years and and, and since then of course and i just think that's probably the biggest takeaway is if, if you know your business they had an advantage of an enormously successful uh, business you know first the search business and then the ad business that got that that funded it all um but those even ultimately were were you know, came together because of some brilliant minds at the right place at the right time. And, and you really have to go back to Larry and Sergey and their sort of both their insight and their, and their confidence and their ability, even as fairly young uh, people, both of them in their effectively their first job to dismiss the guidance of many more experienced people who would have turned Google into a much more conventional and much, frankly, much less successful company. And, and from a talent perspective, um, Dave, what was how how did things let's say shift for you like before you were at Google and then after being part of Google like when it comes to now thinking about 
let's say recruiting and, and talent and, and onboarding, like how are you thinking about that? Well, for sure. I mean, there's, there's no more um, formative experience I could have had than, than being at Google in those years and seeing, you know, what the, the caliber of talent around you. I mean, you'd walk into a room and you just realize like, wow, I'm used to being kind of, you know, a reasonably smart person in the room. I don't know if I was ever the smartest, but I feel like I could always hold my own. And you walk into a room at Google and you just feel like, wow, I, I better really shut up until I figure this out because this is like some really brilliant people around me. And I think I just heard that again and again. People would be astounded with the caliber of people around them in the you know mid-2000s at Google. Um, and when I left Google to start my own company, it certainly informed how I thought about things. And um, you know, of course, you have to be a little more realistic. Not every company is Google. Not everybody can go hire, you know, Jeff Dean, one of the most brilliant computer scientists in the world. So you sort of have to adapt a little bit to the reality of, of you, you don't, you are not the magnet that Google certainly was in those days. Uh, but at the same time, I think I have a deep appreciation that, you know, a single extraordinarily ta talented person uh, often can do a huge multiple over what even a, a solid talented person can do in your company. Got it. So let's talk about, let's talk about upstart. So, um, so, so your, your entrepreneurial journey starts. So, so how did the incubation of the idea of upstart happen? Because here you are killing it. You are the president of Google enterprise and, and anyone would have thought, why the hell would you think about giving everything all up? You know, when you are at the top to start all the way from the bottom, what happened? Yeah, I think I actually heard that exact statement more or less a hundred times, several times from my family. Uh, not my wife. My wife was always very supportive. But basically, you know, I was there eight years. I had built this enterprise SaaS thing into, you know, a billion dollars or so in revenue. But ultimately, it wasn't a, a priority business for Google. I don't think, at least in my perspective, it ever got to the level of priorities that, say, AWS did at Amazon. I mean, Bezos kind of latched on to AWS as a super high priority very quickly. And uh, for whether it was my issue or whether it was just, you know, Larry, Sergey, Eric, et cetera, it, it was always good, but not super high priority. And maybe not shocking why, given the success of AdWords and the profitability of AdWords. But in any case, I got to a point where I said, look, uh, this is awesome. I could push it another five years and probably build it from one billion into five billion, et cetera. But I was very curious, frankly, just internally about whether, you know, what I had done at Google, the success I had had, was it a function of me or could you have just put a monkey in there? And, and because Google was such a runaway train, you know, almost anybody could have done this. And, and so it was certainly a bit of a personal challenge. I had never started a company. Um, I felt I had some pretty good skills to offer, but I didn't know. And I really wanted to test it. And again, at the time I was in my mid forties. So I was not, you know, the 25 year old entrepreneur. I was someone who had been around the Valley quite a while. Um, so ultimately I felt that I wanted a I, wanted, I had this openness to ideas that I might want to start. And I went through a period where I considered you know, several different random things and, and ultimately settled on something that became Upstart. And uh, again, it was just a sort of a Venn diagram, if you will, of, of openness to leaving Google, starting something new uh, with you know, the right idea that, that came into my head. And again, whether it was the right idea or not uh, is a different question. So how does this idea come into your head and how did you actually end up in bringing this idea to life? What was that process like? Well, through some semi-random conversations, I was, I was kind of talking to, you know, my nephew and a couple others, people who were recent college grads, had a lot of student debt, 
who really wanted to do entrepreneurial-like things, but were kind of saddled with fixed debt payments that just made the idea of starting a company problematic. And I had this like simple notion of, wow, these, these people are really smart. They're likely to earn a lot over their lives, but they are cash poor right now. So why not let them, in effect, monetize their future earning potential and pull some of that money forward in a way that would allow them uh, to pursue something that's more interesting to them? And so this thing, which became known as an income share agreement, uh, was what Upstart was founded on. We actually were not a lending company when we started. It was a, a related product, but a, basically a person would receive some money through a bunch of contributors, almost in a Kickstarter-like model, and would pay them back over a period of time based on a fraction of their income. And that uh, was a very sort of radical notion, super interesting notion, um, ultimately a notion that didn't scale particularly well for a lot of reasons, but that was what Upstart was. And I kind of explored it for several months before, you know, still at Google, kind of explored it behind the scenes to see whether I, I felt it could be a real, a real company. And ultimately, you know, at some point I, I jumped off and said, I want to do this and, and pursue it. And, and, you know, that came about, uh, uh, early in 2012. And what was that trigger that moment where you say, I'm, I'm going to do this. You know, I don't know. It's funny. You had to sort of test yourself. I just kept digging in and getting a little bit more enamored. I actually had my nephew help me do a little like primary research on a few college campuses to see whether kids graduating thought this was interesting, something you'd want to participate in. And that came back like, at least as far as I could tell, like screamingly positive in terms of something of interest. And, you know, I met with a bunch of people who were in related industries, either something like this or in peer to peer lending. And so many of them scared, tried to scare me off of it. They basically told me all the reasons it wouldn't work. And I just found myself wanting to just fight them with this. And I, I just began to develop this conviction, despite what I was hearing that I could make this work. And so, yeah, I mean, it was just this turning point where I finally said, look, I think if I never explore this, I'm going to regret it. And ultimately, the trigger on leaving Google was I came to the conclusion, really with, with my wife, that even if it was a complete failure, that I wouldn't regret trying. And just having the experience of trying to make something go uh, from scratch, just me, just an idea, uh, was to me very appealing. And again, if, as long as you're comfortable that there's a very high likelihood of failure, uh, why not? I hear you. I hear you. So what was the founding team like for, for Upstart? Sorry, what what's the, the picture? What, what was the picture? What was the picture of the founding team? Well, you know, I, I had talked to a few people at, at, that were colleagues at Google, like some, kind of quietly. I mean, I was running a large team at Google. I, I wasn't exactly able to go, hey, I want to start a company. What do you think? So I had a few quiet conversations with Google colleagues and a few others. And pretty much, you know, they kept saying, no, not, not interested. Thank you. Uh, so unsurprisingly, my, my idea was not like winning them all over. So ultimately I decided the only way for me to form a founding team was to actually resign. So I could sort of more aggressively go after it. And so when I resigned, it was literally just me and a little sort of summary of what I wanted to do. Um, but I quickly, you know, through my little networking activities, um, got semi randomly connected to one of my co-founders, Paul, uh, you know, I was 46 at the time. Paul was 20 at the time. And a woman who we, I had met networking about this idea introduced us just through email. And Paul flew out uh, to California from New York, spent a day with me, and boom, we decided to do this together because we were thinking of similar ideas. And we essentially merged our ideas. And as I was kind of exiting Google, uh, Anna 
my other co-founder was um, uh, someone I worked with at Google, and she essentially came by to tell me goodbye. And when she came to tell me goodbye, she said, what are you going to do? And as I described it, she said, wow, that is really awesome, uh, unlike a lot of others. <laughs> and so Anna, in the end, decided to join me. So that was that's how Paul, Anna, and Dave you know, came together in, in early 2012. And it was super powerful to go from just one person who has an idea to three of us who we're ready to all throw in on it. And that's that's a big uh, change for a founder when you're just one person versus even the smallest of teams. Really cool. And 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 obviously, was there like, um, like very, was it straightforward to really divide and conquer on the responsibilities? Because Paul went to product, Anna went to operations, and, and you obviously went to, to more like the management. Yeah, to overhead. Yeah. That's me. Yeah. So, 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 so how, I mean, was there like, you guys already knew or was there a discussion or why did you divide and conquer like that? Uh, it, it was pretty clear. I mean, I had had the experience of building a, a significant sized business. So I, you know, and, and I really was the one pulling the three of us together. So, you know, I, I was going to be the CEO in this thing. And I had done a lot of product stuff in my history, et cetera. Paul really was, Paul had already built the very first version of the, what became our model himself, you know, just exploring this idea. And Anna was clearly an operational uh, person who was exceptional at building teams and scaling operations up. So we kind of knew what we were good at and we were fairly complimentary that way. So there wasn't really, to be honest, any, any debate about that. It was, um, uh, kind of an obvious way. Now, none of us, I mean, Paul, both Paul and I studied computer science. I hadn't written code in forever and, and I did not really, other than I probably wrote six lines of code at Upstart, but Paul, uh, Really, uh, so Paul ended up building our first website himself, though he really was not not desiring to be a, a software engineer. So, you know, we really had three of us, um, but we didn't really have a, uh, an engineering founder per se, which was, of course, a little bit of a challenge. But you know, we resolved that soon enough. Got it. So for a couple of years, then you guys started to execute, and then all of a sudden, in 2014, you do a pivot and. And I'm sure that this was like a game changer. So, so what was the process that led to that pivot, and and kind of like make us be insiders for a little bit in in that in that stage, in that really critical stage of the business? Yeah. So, you know, the first year we kept we built the product very quickly. We got it out there. This is the original Upstart product, and we saw some degrees of success. So there was reason to, again to believe if you just kind of keep turning the knobs and fixing things, this will work. And so we went through that for, say, a year or a bit more. And, you know, I'd go to my board and say, you know, it's getting better. We, we you know, a little bigger this month than last month, et cetera. But it clearly was off by probably an order of magnitude or more on where we really needed to be to make it a viable business. And, you know, at one board meeting, um, Josh Koppelman, who's with First Round Capital, a phenomenally helpful board member, um, he, he, he was kind of sometimes on the video because he, he works out of Philadelphia, so he wasn't always here. But I have this distinct recollection of, of Josh basically saying, I have a question. I have a question. And, uh, and he said, you know, when we did this investment, you told me there were going to be hordes at the gate. Um, I don't sense that there are hordes at the gate. Are, are there hordes at the gate? And, and I said, no, Josh, there are no hordes at the gate. So it was just this thing where we kind of had to own up that it just was not really scaling and, and working. And, and ultimately, you know, we had maybe six months of cash left. And I, and I took Paul and Anna and said, let's go to this little coffee shop on California Ave in Palo Alto. And let's talk about what we want to do. And we decided to pivot toward loans, you know, frankly, in a matter of a few hours. 
And we had to convince ourselves that there was some, you know, opportunity there that we could go after. I mean, we really didn't know whether we could differentiate ourselves from others that were already doing this. People like Lending Club had been doing it for years. Uh, so it took a while to convince ourselves that this would actually be better, not worse. And um, But honestly, it went from a, a conversation in a coffee shop to a little bit of socializing over a couple of days with a few other leaders to we're doing this and pulling the trigger probably within a week. Um, there's part of the story we won't probably tell when we write the book, which is that we did decide to actually keep both products for a short period of time. So we, we just couldn't quite let go of the dream and, and bury the income share agreement. So, you know, between the end of 2013 and, and, and say early, you know, spring 2014, we, we were going to have both. And we in fact launched the loan product as a side by side with the income share. And it works so well, like, we did more loans in the first month than we had done in the entire history with the income share agreement. Um, literally a, a week after launching the loan, we said, oh, by the way, we're killing this other thing. And we sunset the income share agreement. So we'll skip that part and just say it was a bold pivot. In fact, it was a pivot with a slight hedge to it that, you know, looking back on it, um, we can understand why. That's really amazing. And, and, and I guess for the people that are listening, I mean, I'm sure that there's a ton of people listening that they're, not yet on product market fit and hitting their head against the wall. What what advice would you give them from from this learning experience of having to do a pivot to really go after that product market fit? Well, the first thing is, you know, I think every every entrepreneur has to be an optimist, but you can easily interpret false positive signals as product market fit. And, you know, you can look at when I did the little survey with my nephew, I thought, wow, that's validation if I've ever seen it. Or when we got the first rush of people that wanted to um, sign up for these income share agreements, that just felt like validation. And by the way, we got a ton of press. I mean, it was such an exotic story, so compelling that we didn't even have to try. I mean, we, we, were, we were getting crazy press and that brought crazy traffic. And you can just take these as, you know, signs of success. But frankly, they weren't. I mean, uh, the fact that you get tons of traffic, unless you're turning it into tons of business, doesn't, you know, in the end mean all that much. And so I think you do have to be cautious of sort of false positive signals and just try to really get down to are people adapting this product is in a way that it's, you know, it's going to scale or whatever. And but as usual, you know, there's no easy answer to this question of when do you quit on the idea and move on to something else versus keep turning the nerd knobs, keep fixing it. And, um, you know, did we wait too long? You know, maybe, uh, maybe we should have made the call sooner, but ultimately it's really hard, you know, when you're invested in something to just walk away from it. It was not as if we had zero success with the product. It just wasn't really going to scale. And, um, you know, fortunately it turned out well for us. I, I, it is probably the essential hard problem for any entrepreneurs is, is when to throw in the towel on one thing and move on to the next. So, so, and that, and that's that's good uh, feedback there uh, that you're providing, Dave. I guess for the people that are listening, so that they get a better understanding now after doing those shifts and those pivots, what ended up being the business model of Upstart? Well, we became essentially a platform to offer uh, consumers loans using very fancy data modeling, which which is now you know generally referred to as machine learning or AI, and a lot of alternative data to price credit. So. You know, that's the basic model we, we work in now, which is very fancy math and lots of alternative data because um, risk modeling or pricing of credit is a fairly antiquated industry. Uh, so we basically felt with much better math, 
much better technology, you could make affordable credit available to far more people. And that's the essence of our, our business today. Um, it's not exactly where we started, but it's obviously related to where we started. And, um, and, and it's, it's a, a pretty awesome proposition, to be frank. I mean, we've demonstrated, I don't, I don't want to brag about our company. So we've had a lot of great success in it just because it's a market where there's enormous opportunity just to reduce risk which equates to reducing, you know, the interest rate someone pays on a loan. And that just has obvious, obvious um, benefits. And I think one of the, you know, the huge lessons here is it's really hard to create a new market from scratch. I mean, companies do it, but it is damn hard. It is actually much more realistic to enter a market that exists and have something very unique and different that allows you to stand out and differentiate. And, you know, we had a bit of success, though not enough, on the former. And then I think we've had quite a degree of success in the latter. And I imagine as well that uh, they for building something like this, it's it has to be capital intensive. So how, how much capital have you guys raised to date? And, and I also understand that you guys made an announcement on, on April 8th, actually, a couple of days ago on this regard. So, so how much capital have you guys raised to date? Yeah, we've raised um, a total of about 160 million. Um, and we announced last, last week that we had just uh, raised 50 million, which is our Series D. So at least relative to most in our industry, we're actually quite capital efficient. Um, having raised 160, we actually still have on hand more than 100 of that either in cash or somehow invested in our loans in some way. So our, you know, we have over hundred million in equity out of 160 raised. And, you know, having, if you want to put it that way, burned through, you know, 50 or 60 million to build the company we have today, I think is a pretty damn good mark of capital efficiency. So, you know, there's startups that love to raise and grow and, and they burn through tons of cash and they're building enormously powerful businesses. And you could put the Ubers and Lyfts in those categories. Uh, we're definitely on the, on the, on the approach of, uh, you know, being very capital efficient, building a business that is already generating profits uh, as well as growing quickly. Yeah, got it. And one of the things that, that I saw is you probably have the most unbelievable seed round. It's got to be one of the most unbelievable seed rounds in the history of <laughs> of startups, of startup fundraising in terms of, uh, of names. I mean, you got First Round, Kleiner Perkins, NEA, Google Ventures, Mark Cuban, Crunch Fund. And then, and then if we if we think about the Series A, you got Eric Schmidt, Mark Benioff, Kosla, Founders Fund, Collaborative Fund. I mean, how how did you get all these guys on board like so early on? Well, I mean, I had I had some fortunate in that you know I I had done some good things at Google, and certainly that background of having built a, at least a you know a fairly large business at Google gave me some advantages. Um, to be honest, like it is great. And some of those investors have been phenomenally helpful, but it's not at all the way to measure success in a company. In, in many ways, um, you know, those kind of party rounds where you have tons of participants can really be bad, particularly in a seed round. Um, you know, so in many ways, it actually led to problems later where, you know, we needed to raise a series A and it just wasn't totally apparent to anybody. You know, we had you know, gotten the business far enough to warrant a Series A. And when you have that many names on the list of your seed, um, the natural question is, well, who the heck else would ever want to put money in this if those seed investors aren't ready to fund the A round? So, you know, we went through some of these dynamics that I think um, startups uh, can find themselves in, in, in fundraising. And, and I had never raised any money before this. So I, I was fairly naive. And of course, I was an optimist. 
Uh, yeah. But, you know, the single recommendation generally is I think taking seed money from seed funds is a good idea. Taking seed money from general purpose venture funds, generally not a great idea. Especially because it's probably tricky, no? Because here, uh, the seed round, you raised that in 2012. You did the pivot in 2014. And obviously, these kind of funds, they're not big fans of, of pivots. Like, they want to invest X and, and, and get an output of Y. Like, everything a little bit more figured out on the on the wheel turning. So it probably was a little bit tricky for you on the signaling in the event, these guys were not coming forward with bigger checks on the on the next financing cycle. That's exactly right. That? When we raised our Series A, we we were still in the prior model that had not proven itself at all, and I had a lot of those early investors kind of said, "Well, let's wait and see." And they're saying they're saying, "Let's wait and see." I'm saying, "Wow, I'm going to run out of money." Um, and ultimately, first round capital, to their credit, I just a phenomenal partner stepped up and said, "You know, this model's not yet working, but we really believe in this team." Uh, they led our A round and that, you know, uh, and by the time we got to the B, we had moved on to loans and the business was beginning to prove itself. So uh, to be honest, sometimes it really uh, is, you know, there's a little either luck involved or just just the fact that I had uh, gotten involved with first round capital, to be honest, uh, at that moment in time, you know, saved the company. That's amazing. Well, that says a lot about Josh and, and the team at first round. So you know, kudos to them. So, so I guess how, just for the people that are, that are listening, how big is, is Upstart today? Uh, we're a couple hundred people. We did uh, in the range of a hundred million in revenue last year. Uh, we've been uh, either doubling or close to doubling uh, each of the last few years. We, we reached profitability in the second half of 2018. Uh, so, you know, generally in a business that will generate cash this year, we hope to grow, you know, high, uh, double digits, if not triple digits this year. Um, and it's a consumer lending platform that's also kind of branching into providing the technology to banks and other lenders. So we have kind of a fairly mature um, B2C business, if you will, and a much more nascent but emerging B2B business all under one roof. Um, so it's, you know, I, I think we're really pleased that we don't judge ourselves by headcount. In fact, you know, I think we reached something in the range of a million dollars per employee and in, in revenue, um, which is pretty extraordinary. And it's something we're proud of. And uh, so so we've done a lot and it's nothing's ever easy in startup world, but uh, obviously pretty happy with where we've gotten to. That's really interesting. So what you mentioned here, Dave, so I guess, what is your view on your take on growth versus profit? Yeah, I mean, it's a little different by industry, I, I would say. There are certainly businesses where just being the biggest, it, it kind of predicts the success more than anything. A lot of software businesses are like that. In lending, you know, let me tell you, you can be as, if, if, as long as you can raise money, you can be as big as you want because there's an infinite number of people who will take loans from you. But ultimately, you know, whether those loans perform, whether your unit economics work, et cetera, is a different question. So we've always been the ones in the industry that says, look, we don't have any interest in originating loans that are going to perform poorly. We don't have any interest in originating loans where we are going to actually lose money ourselves. Uh, so that means we've been much more probably low-key and pragmatic about improving the credit model, which is you know job number one, uh, solidifying the unit economics, which is job number two. And then once those are done, we are very happy and, of course, want to grow a lot. So... I think we're just somewhat down to earth. Uh, some might consider us too down to earth uh, in that sense, but you know we're building a really solid base of a company, and and we are we do have an exciting growth rate, and I think that's kind of what you need to do if you 
you want to be a public company eventually. Yeah, and at the end of the day, you get to control your own destiny. I mean, all these uh, unicorns that are being called undercorns now because they're going to to do their IPOs and they're getting hammered. You know, they're facing the music because of of how you know much they're burning. But but in any case, I guess um, here they've you know looking back. I mean, there's not such thing as a as a straight line as an entrepreneur, right? I mean, there's always the bumpiness happening and. You always have the sense, especially at the beginning, that things are going to come to a potential end. But I guess for you guys, at what point were you able to really kind of like take a deep breath and say, we're going to make it? And this is, we're into something big here. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, um, you almost never completely feel that way. But certainly, you know, our, our industry went through some hiccups in early 2016. So we were, our, we had a lending business. It was growing. We we're doing well. But some of the other guys in the industry had some problems and and it all of a sudden just caused a sort of an upside downturn in our whole industry and affected everybody. All the interest in funding these loans kind of dried up. So we went through a really hard time in the first half of 2016, but we emerged from it. I mean, um, it was no small challenge, uh, but by the, you know, later that year, all of a sudden things were coming together again. And I just think after that, having survived that, even with, you know, a model that clearly had product market fit, um, we survived what was really some pretty difficult challenges. I think we gained confidence that, look, you know, there's more challenges ahead, but I don't think they'll be worse than that. We, we, we would expect a recession to hit. We, we would expect, you know, certain things won't always work as well as we hoped. Uh, but having said that, you know, I think if you survive a few challenges as a team, you know, we still have the three founders together. We have a, a management team that's been together a long time. Uh, you really begin to have confidence that, you know, there's no problem you can't solve together. That's amazing. Nothing, nothing like the team. Do you guys have any, any special, you know, things or trades or, or I don't know, like some form of like a process on how you onboard people eh, on, on Upstart? You know, we're trying to get better at that. I, I think we do have some very fundamental values in the company. Uh, the the co-founders all really play very different roles here, but we we end up working together really well. It's a, a, one of our early employees who who uh, moved on to something else quite a while ago wrote me a note and he said, you know, I finally figured out what makes Upstart tick. And he basically said, you know, Paul is all about seek the truth. And Dave is all about do it quickly. And Anna is all about bring everybody with you. And so we kind of all have these roles that we play. And fortunately, we get along well. We resolve differences. We, um, and, and I think it makes for a stronger company. So having, having founders that can work together, not over a year, but over many years, uh, is a very difficult challenge to solve. But I think it's fundamental to success in, in a business. Oh, absolutely. And I think that the founders are ultimately the ones that are responsible for the culture. And most of the businesses, I think it's like something like 65 or 66% fail because of co-founder issues. So um, it's a, you know, definitely agree with, with what you're saying there, Dave. So, so one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that I have on the show is uh, if they had the chance, I mean, you've been at it for a while, you've seen a lot of things too. So if you had the chance to, to, to speak to your younger self, and I know that this is quite impossible, but if you had that chance, what piece of advice, what piece of business advice would you give to yourself before launching a business and why? Uh, first, I'd probably say don't wait till you're 46. Uh, I'm definitely an outlier in terms of, um, you know, first startup at 46. Now, having said that, I don't think everybody is, is suited to start a business at 21 right after college or, or certainly not leaving college. 
I, I think people should look for a mix of experience that are additive. And being in a in a very strong large company, uh, there's only a few of them that I think large companies where you can really go and have amazing experiences because at some point they just become large companies. Uh, so, but that can be okay. Being in a, a super high growth company that is successful and has its feet under it is also a great experience. Um, diving into an early stage startup is always high risk and you're, you should just expect to fail. So my advice to anybody would be look for a diversity of experience. Don't jump in and out of things every year. Look to lock yourself in for three or four years at least, and but have a big company experience, have an emerging growth experience. And yes, take a shot at the startup. And then, you know, ultimately, hopefully before you hit your 40s, uh, take a shot at your own startup. I love it. I love it. So I guess, uh, Dave, um, what is the best way for people that are listening to to reach out and say hi? Uh, certainly, if you want to reach out uh, at, at Upstart, you know, you can you can sign up there, connect uh, connect, or reach out to us uh, via our website. Or uh, certainly, I'm I'm relatively active on Twitter, so at Dave Gerard on Twitter is a good place to find me as well. Amazing. Well, Dave, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thanks, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.